When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Kyle. And I'm Matthew. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. Uh, Got any uh, old business we need to talk about, Matthew? Uh, kinda. Ooh. Uh, just a reminder that Audio Judo is now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast oh, Network. Yeah. If you like our podcast, please check out some of the others over there. Uh, I'm a big fan, personally, of a History in Five Songs by oh. Martin Popoff. I keep meaning to listen to that. It looks cool. It's really cool. Uh, any fans of Rush out there will recognize Martin Popoff's name. Uh, he's written several biographies of the band, um, and his podcast is really informative and entertaining. Uh, so check that out at PantheonPodcast.com. That is Pantheon Podcasts with yes, an S with at the end. S, com. If I was not clear. Uh, if you want more of us... And frankly, who doesn't? Right. Except our families. Yeah. Uh, become a Patreon supporter for bonus content, discounts on merchandise, and some other cool opportunities. Uh, subscription plans range from $3 to $20 a month. And you can find that at patreon.com forward slash audio judo. Or there's some links from our website at audiojudo.com if you can't remember the uh, Patreon website. Also that. Although I don't know why you wouldn't, but eh, who knows? That's a weird word. Patreon. Patreon. I said it wrong for a long time. Patreon. No, that's A lot of it. people pronounce it that way. Mm. But uh, I'm pretty sure it's Patreon because it's like a patron. Where does that extra E come from? That's weird. Engli right. English. What a language. Stupid. Uh, this week, uh, we are talking about the record Vivid by Living Color. Yes. And I feel like this is going to be somewhat of a difficult episode kind of to get through. I would agree. Uh, it could. So I guess we should probably set this up a little bit. We're currently recording this in uh, late June, mid to late June 2020. Correct. Um, and right now there are huge Black Lives Matters, uh, peaceful protests going on, not only across the country, but all over the world right now, mm -hmm. which is fantastic in my opinion. I think that it's uh, it's great. It's about damn time. Uh, yeah. I definitely think that Black Lives Matter. I mean, it's 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 important. It's the... it's a huge event I think in history that we're witnessing right now. I, yeah, I, hopefully there's a sea change in how people are treated and how this moves forward. Uh, when I sat down to write this out and kind of do my normal routine of listening to the record several times and kind of script out my thoughts song by song, uh, I kept getting derailed, uh, by what is happening in the country right now. It kept kind of throwing me off and, and how there are so many parallels to the songs I was listening to and how very little we have traveled yeah. as a society since this album was released in 1988. Um, <laughs> it's frustrating 
Uh, but the one thing that it does allow you to do, hopefully, as an intelligent person, uh, is become kind of introspective as to how, how far you've come in your own life and how those lessons are applied now. My belief is kind of that wherever this episode takes us is where it needs to go. And whatever conversations come out of it, we'll just kind of go with it from there. All right. Um, kind of setting the table, I guess, so to speak. Uh, I was born personally in Warren, Michigan. It's a it's the largest suburb of Detroit, and it's the third largest city by population in Michigan. Uh, both my parents were born in Detroit proper, uh, and when they got married in 1962, they wanted some distance between their parents and themselves, so they moved to the suburbs. Uh, so apart from what it may look like, they were not part of what came to be known as white flight in the Detroit area. Uh, that started to happen in earnest in the late 60s, post-Detroit riots of 67. Yeah. Uh, my grandparents on my dad's side lived in the heart of Detroit, uh, about a quarter mile south of 8 Mile. Yes, that 8 Mile. <laughs> um, it wasn't the greatest neighborhood in the world. Uh, the houses were old and there were weeds and the cracks on the street, but my grandparents' house was nice enough. My, gran my grandpa's garden in the backyard was always blooming. <laughs> That's what I remember anyway. Over the years, you know, it was in noticeable decline, uh, but that was true everywhere. Uh, everything started to just age out. Uh, my maternal grandparents had also lived in the Warren area, kind of near where I was born, uh, and then they moved to an apartment as my grandpa's health uh, got worse and worse, and they moved to an area also on 8 Mile called Harper Woods, which is a small incorporated residential area surrounded by Detroit on all sides. So it was completely, Detroit surrounded this community. Hmm. One block in any direction from their apartment and you were in Detroit. Wow. So it's it's a tiny area. Very tiny, yeah. That's weird. Uh, so I tell you all this to set the table kind of for what's to come. So my mom's parents, to my knowledge, were not overtly racist. I don't remember them being that way. Uh, my feeling is that they there was probably some there because they were in their 80s. At that point, and I feel like most people from that age uh, had are, some latent racist, are racist. feelings <laughs> for whatever reason. Yeah. They are racist. But I never witnessed any of that from them uh, that I can recall. My dad's parents, on the other hand, especially my grandmother, whole different story. <laughs> God rest her soul. She passed in 2011 at the age of 99. Uh, but she blamed the African-Americans for everything that was wrong in the city of Detroit. Everything Jesus. that was wrong everywhere. Uh, she blamed the mayor, Coleman Young, for trashing the city. And truth be told, as far as politicians went, he was not the best politician. Uh, I remember even at that age, like 13 or 14 years old, uh, being disgusted at the words that she used, fairly specific racial slurs, mm. right? And part of the family tried to write a lot of that off, kind of, you know, as a product of the time. You know, she lived through the riots of 67, and they look around the neighborhood and Stuff like that. And I felt that, of course, that was no justification, even at 13. I'm like, no. I used to threaten to walk out of Thanksgiving dinners. I wouldn't talk to her. And as the black sheep of the family is wont to do, <laughs> I isolated myself. Uh, many days I wondered how I could be related to all of that. And part of me used to think about whether or not my parents were that way as well. Certain phrases that they used, stuff that's even surfacing now, stuff like, she is a really pretty black woman, mm. weren't overtly racist, but it was still there. And I don't know that their intention was even to make that a racist comment. It was just in the connotation. 
of how it was used. Uh, my future in-laws used to chew me out for taking Heather to these areas, uh, Belle Isle or Hart Plaza in Detroit, to go ice skating because it was, quote-unquote, sketchy and dangerous. And these were places that I went to so many times growing up, and I never thought about it twice. You know, should I be thinking about it? What was I missing? What was I not paying attention to? And was I that way too? Uh, I tried really hard to not be that way, but who knew? And how would it surface, you know, if it did? Uh, so I went to a private high school in Warren. I had attended public school up until that point, and it was not very racially diverse. Um, my feeling was that going to this particular high school, because of the history of the school, it had been around in Detroit since 1928, and then moved to the suburbs in 1982 because the building was falling apart, so they looked for a better place. Uh, my feeling was that it was going to be more diverse than where I had gone previously. And the fact that I know the names of all of the black kids that graduated with me will let you know that it wasn't nearly <laughs> as racially diverse as I thought it would be. Um, they were three of 182. Wow. Yeah. So the first time I heard this record was at a school marching band rehearsal in the summer of 1988. Uh, it's the summer between my sophomore and junior year. I was sitting around with a few friends with my stereo playing this tape when one of the girls said to me, what are you listening to? And I said, it was a band named uh, Living Color. You should check it out. And she said, is this black music? And I answered, the musicians are black. Yes. And she responded with, why are you listening to that? You don't listen to black music. And I said, you're right. I listen to music. And the, com the comment that she made pissed me off maybe more so now than it did then yeah and i wish i had the wisdom of being 48 years old to say something smart but my response was akin to i don't see color yeah. the comment of now i don't see color however that's such a blind statement because we need to see color need to see them for who they are and appreciate that that part of them is part of who they are and we need them to be that as well anyway the the band Living Color was formed in New York City, 1984, uh, and those early incarnations of the band sounded nothing like uh, what it would come to be. <laughs> uh, originally, it, it was referred to as Vernon Reed's Living Color and was more jazz funk oriented with some punk stuff and some experimental sounds because Reed really liked to play the guitar synth. Oh. He was well known in New York City in the mid 80s because he was part of an avant-garde jazz group called the Decoding Society. And he also helped found the Black Rock Coalition in 1985, which helped to band together African-Americans involved in rock music to help their music uh, get noticed. But one of their noticeable attributes was addressing the phenomenon of the crossover of black musicians to white audiences. Oh, cool. Some saw this as positive uh, for integration and for like cross-racial harmony. And then there was some on the other side who thought that it was a delusion, like a, like a diluted version of black social and cultural power, arguing that the black artists who aimed at the mainstream were forsaking the black musical tradition. They were sellouts, basically, is what some people thought. Exactly. So the Black Rock Coalition sought to bridge that gap. So um, I originally heard about the Black Rock Coalition in mid-1987 when I was listening to a lot of Fishbone. Uh, lead singer of Fishbone, Angelo Moore, talked about the BRC in an interview uh, which made me curious about the music of the other members. So I tracked down some of Reed's Decoding Society stuff, and it was a little too out there for me at the time, but I remembered the name. 
So when the first real Living Color song came out, I knew who he was. What is interesting to note is that this is not a garage band of high school friends that got slapped together, or a group of locals. The group that became Living Color was a group of extremely talented and accomplished musicians already. Besides Reed, who was a very accomplished jazz guitarist and session player, uh, and he could pretty much play any style, Muzz Skillings was the bass player. He was only 23 when he, they recorded this record. Uh, the drummer was Will Calhoun, who graduated from the Berkeley College of Music and was a Buddy Rich Masters Award winner. Ooh. And rounding out the group was singer Corey Glover. And Glover was an actor before he became a singer, appearing as Private Francis in Oliver Stone's Academy Award-winning movie Platoon. Mm -hmm. As the story goes, Reed heard Glover sing Happy Birthday at a party and immediately recruited him to join Living Color. Wow. They were so impressed by his voice. Now that they're formed in 1986-ish, they start tearing around the live circuit in New York, CBGBs and all the haunts that make groups famous back then. Reed ends up getting session work on Mick Jagger's second solo album, Primitive Cool, and caught the attention of Jagger himself. Uh, he came and saw their set and was blown away, and he offered to produce a couple of songs for them, both of which are presented on this record, Vivid. Uh, he became the band's benefactor and kind of spurred the success of Vivid, um, and they ended up being one of the warm-up bands on the Rolling Stones' 1989 Steel Wheels tour, along with some other up-and-coming band that you may have heard of. Who? What? what who? Uh, Guns N' Roses. Oh. Oh. Yeah. And it's all on the back of this debut record, Vivid. That's pretty amazing. It's amazing to me, too, that Mick Jagger also played uh, harmonica on, on this album. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that just seems so weird to me. But I, I guess, I mean, I'm, well, yeah, sure, why not? I addressed that, and when we get to that song. Sweet. Because it's, you know, yeah. So Vivid was released in, on May 3rd, 1988. Uh, would almost be six months before it got any real traction. I heard it that summer, but I was an anomaly because none of my friends knew what the hell I was talking about. <laughs> it wasn't until the second single, which we would talk about shortly, had its video premiere on MTV, did there start to be a commotion. And once that fire was lit, it would be impossible to stop this record for about two years. Uh, record eventually would become double platinum, plateau at number six on the album charts, win a Grammy for best hard rock performance, and end up... As of 2020, Rolling Stone's 71st greatest metal album of all time. Yep. About the album cover, did you, did you find anything out? I didn't really. Okay, I, uh, so I did. Oh, good. I'm glad, because I looked around a little bit, but I did not see anything super detailed about it. So so it took some digging, but it's, one, it's a really great story. So uh, the artist who did the cover, uh, his name is Graham Elliott. Uh, 1988, you got a call from quote-unquote Steve from CBS Records, uh, he was sitting with Vernon Reed in his office, and he said to Graham, I have Vernon Reed here with me, and he saw the postcard you gave me. Will you do the album sleeve for his new band, Living Color? Hmm. So he said, sure. So they did some computer imagery and prepared the unnamed, his emphasis, unnamed album elements and packaged it up to FedEx up to New York. Steve directed him to, quote, just slap a type sample in the space that you want the name to go. So they were working for a design company called Vivid at the time. We took one of their letterheads, pasted it for position only on the markup, 
The band's logo was not fully developed, so we dropped in a hand-drawn sketch. A month or so later, a package arrived. It was the final printed sleeve. Not only was the temporary logo used, they, we, had named the album Vivid, <laughs> and to our initial horror, used the type straight from the Vivid letterhead. So they ended up having to negotiate with this design company that they were using their logo now to use it on their record. <laughs> That's awesome. Like, hold here. Oh, so the name of the album is Hold Here? Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> so, when, yeah, when I found that story, I'm like, that's awesome. I got to, that's good stuff. <laughs> that is pretty amazing. <laughs> uh, so that's all the setup I have for the record. What, do you have anything? Right? No, you, yeah. you pretty much covered it. The only other thing I had was uh, 1989. Uh, it won, uh, they won Best New Artist. Best Group Video and Best Stage Performance at the MTV uh, Music Video Awards, all for Cult of Personality, mm -hmm. which is what we're about to get to right now. Cult of Personality, huh? First track on here, probably the track that most people are going to recognize off this album, if you're not familiar. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, yeah. So following the course of a lot of big albums over the years, Vivid mm -hmm. leads off with, you know, what is believed to be the strongest song. Uh, most likely first single and hopefully first hit mm -hmm. off the record. The only thing I question is whether or not it's the strongest song. It's not. It's a close second. Really? Yeah. Uh, but this was a sea change in rock music. It was unlike anything we had heard to that point, and it opens with an edited speech from Malcolm X. Here's the opening. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. There's an almost perfect quote from uh, Tom Morello from uh, Rage Against the Machine, Audio Slave, Prophets of Rage, mm -hmm. um, about this song. Uh, he told, uh, when he was being interviewed by The Ringer, he said, when I first heard the song Cult of Personality, I was absolutely blown away that clearly there were other African Americans who unapologetically loved Led Zeppelin and wanted to shred. The record opened the doors to my career. Mm. That, to me, is like, that. that sums up this whole song. It's really, it, it's so influenced by classic rock, well, what we call classic rock now, but yeah. the rock from the 60s and 70s and early 80s, there's little influences of hair metal, and there's little hints of what's about to happen in rock with people like, you know, Audio Slave and Rage Against the Machine and uh, Stone Temple Pilots and uh, all the, like, heavier metal rock bands that happened in the early 90s. It's kind of, it's a, it's a, this song is in such a weird spot, because mm -hmm. 1988... It's right at the end of kind of the rock era, and it's right before all that heavy rock stuff that happened. And it's it fits in both categories, but it's it's a it's a great song. So I just learned recently that apparently Rage Against Machine their their songs are about politics. Or right? Something? Who would have thought? What? I was blown away. I did not know this. 
Now, I, I honestly thought the machine was like a fax machine that they were mad at. Really? Like a they, they were like, I'm machine. so mad that you don't have paper and ink. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Damn you, washing machine! You're not getting my jeans clean enough. Exactly. This was all new information. It's very just disconcerting. Blown away. So the, <laughs> this is just one of those blistering premieres that you never forget. Mm-hmm. Lyrically, it is definitely an exercise in like dual sides because yes. it's you have you have the good person, allegedly the good person, the the Kennedy, the Gandhi, and. On the bad side, you have the Stalin and the Mussolini. Yeah. But essentially, the exact same thing is happening, one for good, one for not so good. But it's the same phenomenon. So the cult of personality itself, defined as when an individual, quote, uses the techniques of mass media, propaganda, the big lie, spectacle, the arts, patriotism, and government-organized demonstrations and rallies to create an idealized, heroic, and worshipful image of a leader— often through unquestioningly flattery and praise. I I just wish there was a way huh. that we could draw this into modern politics huh. and, and there was somebody currently now in 2020 that we could hold up as like an, a, 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 an example of this. I wish I had a name for you, but... <sighs> I don't... I, I feel like I've seen it recently and i feel like if we did come up with names though we would just constantly be trying to trump one another mm. i would be saying a name and then you'd be saying a name and then mm. i'd be like oh well, no this person and mm. orange you glad i didn't say trump i am yes yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, we're here all week folks <laughs> uh but yeah that's weird i wonder if <laughs> that is an action right now uh <laughs> that video for the song like you mentioned it's just a, a band doing a simulated live performance interspersed with all this historical footage that they were referencing. But it was an, such an iconic moment of that time. Visceral, very powerful images. And it helped that the song itself was really, really good. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the all the MTV awards and stuff. Finished at number 13 on the Billboard Hot 100, which is huge for a hard rock song. Yeah. And it landed itself on pretty much every best of list that you can mention. Uh, one of the things that I absolutely love about this song, and it's something that you and I keep coming back to over and over again, was that this song was written in one day. Yeah. Corey Glover was humming some notes. Vernon Reed heard it, tried to match it on his guitar, then developed his Zeppelin-like riff and went to his notebook for some lyrics. First thing he flipped to was the first line, look in my eye, what do you see? The cult of personality. Boom. And by the end of the rehearsal day, this song was almost completely done. And I'm just, I love that so much. And I'm so jealous of people's abilities to kind of just pull this stuff out of the ether and make it so memorable for so long. I really do think like, you know, we always talk about people just kind of snapping their fingers and this type of thing happens. I really do think what happens in those situations is, you know how you can think about something and then push it to the subconscious part of your mind? For, yeah. for, for for a time and your brain still works on it in the background stuff happens then all of a sudden one day you're like oh duh i should have done bleh. i feel like that's what happens in these situations they've had ideas they've had little pieces in their head that are all disparate they're all separate from one another and then all of a sudden something happens on that one day they're like they hear a riff or they come up with some beat or something and all those pieces start to assemble because their brain 
had them processing back there. And all of a sudden it's like, Hey, you know, it would fit in here, this piece. And you remember these lyrics, they would go great on top of there. And then this happens and this happens and this happens and all the little Lego pieces come together and you get a song out of it. I just want to see that in action. It'd be great. Just kind of witness it from the, from the genesis of an idea. I wonder if anybody, I wonder if anybody has ever, um, like when they're filming like a a rock documentary or something Mm. has ever been there on one of these days where like they were just, you know, oh, we're just going into the studio to screw around today. And it's just happens to be the day they record some like number one hit song, you know, like yeah, start off the day with nothing. Yeah. Someone's just casually strumming a guitar and then, oh, I like that. Oh, I have some words. Yeah, and they just start building <laughs> off of it. And then it becomes a huge hit. I'll have to see if I can find that somewhere. I bet you it exists. I'm sure it does somewhere. So uh, I, I want to know where it exists. Oh, no, no, you're too early. Oh, you, uh, you got more. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, it's all right. So one of my favorite memories of this song was seeing it performed uh, live. I saw them in 1989 at the Michigan Theater in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Cool. It was the night before my ACT test. <laughs> perfect <laughs> time. Perfect time to go out and party. And I went with my brother and sister and they didn't play this song until the very end. But at the very end of the song where it moves into double time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the three guys who weren't playing drums uh, started this figure eight pattern around the stage, like following each other at like really high speed as they're playing. So it's this really choreographed, energetic thing. And the crowd just went freaking nuts because it's like it's it wasn't like anything I've ever seen before. It's three guys running around in brightly colored spandex jumpsuits, rocking their brains <laughs> out. It's an image I'll never forget because it was just like, you know, they're they're just they're banging their head for most of the song to begin with. And then as that break happens, kind of all the music dumps out and there's, I think it's uh, FDR or not FDR's Kennedy that does his line. And then it picks back up in double time. And they're just like, just whooshing around the stage. It was like, <laughs> what the hell is that? I want to know what that is. You do want to know what that is. And surprisingly, that's the name of the next track. I want to know. Oh, this is such a great song and a forgotten about song on this record. Oh, absolutely. I think it's completely buried by the first track. Definitely. Uh, it's just standard love song, you know, lyrically pining after his lady. Uh, but musically, you get a real taste of who this band is. It highlights every one of the band members at one mm-hmm. point or another. This great slap bass part, melodic stuff that Muzz Gillings is doing to these real suspended shuffle beats that Will Calhoun keeps dropping in. Stuff that I spent months trying to recreate. Um, I could play it, but I couldn't jam it in the way he did and just make it real casual. Giggity. Yeah. <laughs> and there's this almost kind of doo-wop vocal line yeah. during the bridge that highlights Corey Glover's vocals with some real clever production from Ed Stasium, the producer, bouncing back and forth in your ears. Very cool. And then there's Vernon Reed. This friggin' guitar solo, man. Good Lord. Oh. And it's not just, you know, there's great crunchy riffs in this whole song. And then till the end when he starts this solo. And we heard all the fireworks and Cult of Personality, but this is something uh, because it isn't just this blistering speed is what it sounds like.
so good. Speed, melody, jazz chords, whammy, flange, all kind of <laughs> wrapped up into this fade out solo. Uh, while I've always loved Cult of Personality, this was the song and sound and solo that made me keep putting that tape on again and again to the point where my mom would have to knock on my door to ask if I was okay because I just kept playing it over and over and <laughs> over again. Are you okay? No, not really. You mean physically or mentally? Yeah, that's questionable. <laughs> uh, and then Middleman is on. Yeah. You know where this song came from. The lyrics for this song came from, right? I do, but you go ahead and tell uh, the story. So Corey Glover, uh, this was from a suicide note that he wrote. Uh, Corey Glover said, I was maybe 16, 17 years old, and I was just fed up with everything. Uh, I was feeling just down and depressed. When I initially started writing it, it was going to be an open letter to anybody that found me, uh, that I was tired of being caught up in everybody's mess. I was tired of being in the middle of things. I was tired of being the middleman. Uh, and then in the midst of me working this out in my head, it dawned on me that this was not a bad place to be in some cases, that at least I was somewhere. It doesn't mean that it's the best place in the world, but it doesn't mean it's the worst either. So it actually got me out of the idea that I needed to stop being. It changed my life. Yeah. Pretty powerful stuff. It is. If anyone is struggling with these kinds of feelings out there, since I had the same quote in my notes, there are people out there that can help. Yes. Number for the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. There you go. And again, this song just shines with the musicianship that's like present all over the record. These like signature jam moments that the band has are just so full and complex. Yeah. And I could keep listening to them over and over and over. And I still do. But yeah, again, it's another kind of like these uh, tracks two and three kind of get buried with cult of personality. You usually like if you're listening to this for the first time, that first song is a lot to take in. Yes. And you kind of, it takes a while to kind of recover from that. And the other two, just a couple of these songs just kind of wash by until you really start breaking them down and listening to them. This whole album is kind of up, down, like, yeah, because there's really strong, and not to say that the songs are weak, but there are some very strong songs on this mm -hmm. that kind of overshadow the couple of tracks after them. And that happens at least twice on this. Yeah. At le yes. Ex at least two times that it kind of, and I don't know if, like, if that was uh, Ed Stasium, the producer that was responsible for the pacing of the record, or if the if Ferdinand Reed kind of said a little bit up, a little bit down, a little yeah. bit up, a little bit down. Um, either way, I mean, it had to be intentional because uh, you know you you sit down and you pick what order all your songs are going to go in, and they picked it in such a way that you can tell that they're intentionally placed. Uh, because, like uh, for example, uh, two and three, uh, I want to know in Middleman, both sort of have the same feel to them. Mm. It doesn't fit with the song before them. It doesn't fit with cult of personality and it doesn't fit with desperate people, which comes after them. It has a different sound starting with desperate people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, it, it going forward, um, they started to do what a lot of bands began to do with their next album. Uh, Time's up. And in the third one, uh, stain, there weren't any gaps in songs. Uh, they filled the gap between songs with like a small little, snippet of like a quote or or a small kind of like uh percussive number just oh, kind cool. of bridging the gap between songs so there's no dead space at all it just kind of it kind of it does the same thing it ebbs and flows it yeah. gets quick and gets slow but but they're all kind of connected so you knew that 
the pacing, at least the narrative, that was intentional. I don't know how intentional this record was for that kind of thing, but and I, like I said, when I say that, I don't necessarily mean that this is intentionally told as one coherent storyline. Oh line, no, I didn't think you meant but, that. But you know, obviously, there's intent behind where they were placed on here. Sure. To set the pacing for the record. Desperate people. Yeah, this is a this is another great song that on the surface seems pretty cut and dry. Yeah. Three verses. Uh, they each seem to have someone in despair, either bored or addicted or what have you. But there's a lot of uh, meaning wrapped up in, in here. There's a line in the second verse, uh, you get your sunshine from a tab of paper. Uh, this is a very obvious reference to yellow sunshine, uh, which is another name, or at least it was, for uh, LSD or acid. Uh, they got this name because on the tab was a yellow sun. Hmm. Uh, pretty simple. I know this very well. Uh, because yellow sunshine and orange sunshine were my drugs of choice for a long time. I got involved in uh, an acid at a very early age and was a habitual user for a long time. I showed up to pretty much everything in that way. Uh, band practice, church, family functions, sports events, wow. dates, uh, whatever. And I was pretty good at masking it. I would... Uh, dilute it sometimes so I didn't trip fully mm -hmm. wasn't tripping balls all the time but I just wanted to uh, be somewhere else than in my own head uh, and this drug allowed me to be elsewhere and I was still functional to a degree at least I thought I was uh, but I could see that I wasn't myself and as I started to get older uh, the, when I had used it younger with not a really fully formed viewpoint of the world, I didn't have bad experiences. Mm -hmm. The more I used it, and as I got older and older, and I could see how shitty people were treated, what was wrong with the world, uh, the frequency of that uh, bad experience started to escalate. But I kind of saw a trade-off of, well... I can deal with the occasional bad if I can have many of the good. Uh, and it was the negotiation in your head. Uh, so the, the very first time I heard this song, uh, I got to the bridge uh, and he talks about, quote, uh, you need friends, you need help, but first you have to help yourself. And I just freaking lost it. Um, floodgates uh, curled up in, my, in a ball on my bed trying to stifle my tears so my mom wouldn't hear me. Mm. I was devastated, and that would be the first time uh, that I quit that shit. Unfortunately, it took me two more times to get it right, but I eventually did, and I believe the, that this song was the impetus for that beginning of quitting. That's, that's awesome, though, that there's, that there's a definitive point where you can point at it and say, look, this was a moment where I had a revelation about my addiction and how I was able to start beating it. That's that was cool. It was a weird, it was a weird moment and, and it's bizarre cause I was, uh, um, I was watching a, there's a, um, documentary on the Netflix about psychedelics mm -hmm. that has all these like Sarah Silverman and Sting and telling all these stories about, you know, 
how it's not addictive. And fine, I don't believe that hallucinogens themselves are addictive, but you get addicted to the way it makes you feel, not necessarily as a, well, if I don't have it, like heroin, you know, if I don't have it, I'm going to freak out. Oh, yeah. This was more, I was addicted to what the result was. And I constantly wanted that result. And I had to realize that I had to, I had to get to a point where I could be myself and be comfortable with myself without having to be altered. Um, and you get, you fucking trip balls at a, like a band concert or something. <laughs> Some weird shit goes on. I, uh, I've done acid once and it, uh, it was not for me, but, uh, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't, I apparently did not have a bad trip, but it also was not my drug of choice. Right. So. A <laughs> little too hard for me, to be honest with you. And, and, it, and you I, I can have only to imagine. Be, I can well, only imagine being on it constantly and, and, I, and trying to function like that. That to me is is insane. People talk about set and setting. That's what that's what the big the thing was with hallucinogens is set and setting. Like uh, know who you're with and know where you are, and you have to make sure that those two things marry up or things can go haywire because you never know where, where you're going to go. So, you know, if I knew I was going to Christmas at my aunt's house, I was probably going to dilute and and not be like, look, the carpet's moving, but more, Oh, Christmas lights. Cool. (laughs) Bright colors and just swimming and kind of weird. And, and, you know, you learn to, to mask it and gauge it and people just start to believe that you're just weird in general. <laughs> like he always looks like he's somewhere else. Well, I was somewhere else. <laughs> but if you choose unwisely, things can get really weird really quick. Like being in a in the pit band of guys and dolls for like one of the dress rehearsals <laughs> and just being out of my mind still trying to play drums. And thinking that I'm having the best, like, drum performance of my freaking life. Like, this is the best. And drums are... The, every time I hit it, it's, like, splashing. Like, you can see it splashing your head. And you're like, that's so, yeah. Play. And then afterwards, my buddy's like... My buddy Joe was like, what is your problem? I'm like, what are you talking about? What's the best drum performance in history? He goes, do you were nowhere near the beat? Oh, you were soloing in the middle of songs that have no drum parts. Brother Pat kept asking you if you were okay, and you just kept nodding. I'm like, huh, well, that might have not been a good choice on my part. You know, the drum solo in the middle of Guys and Dolls, that's uh, very famous. Yeah, I'm feeling it. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, a little story there for desperate people. That's... like I said, that's that's great. I'm so glad that you beat your addiction first of all. Thank you. Uh, Me too. I feel like we would be in a very different uh, friendship relationship <laughs> if you were still high on acid all can the you, time. Can you put those horns away, by the way? Uh, yeah. Sorry about that. Let me just push those back. In. <laughs> oh my god, he did it! <laughs> uh, open letter to, to a, a landlord. landlord. So this is the first song that kind of really deals with race on yeah. the record. Um, Cult of Personality had some elements of it, uh, but it was more... But this one is this one is very direct. Yes. And it's uh, it's weird to me that it starts out like a country song, in my opinion, 
because that to me actually says a lot. And there's another one too that starts yeah. like a country song, but yeah, says a lot. What does it say? Well, to me, a lot of times people perceive um, country music to be very white mm. and oftentimes uh, racist. In fact, I mean, you know, just because of who's making it and because of where it comes from and because of the fans that it has. Because they are waving Confederate flags. And because some of them are waving Confederate flags and then doing racist shit. I mean, you know, what a surprise. You do racist shit and people perceive you to be racist. How dare you stereotype me? (laughs) What a surprise. (laughs) Uh, But I I think that that actually, I think it's an intentional choice to try to say, look, this is what we're about to talk about, but we're going to flip it on its head for just a second and make you think about a country song before we dive into the racial inequality that mm. happened and is still happening because of, uh, you know, most of the people that own that are landlords are, are wealthy white people You don't and say. they're slumlords, you know, they, they own the property that minorities rent. I mean, that's. Yeah. So the, the topic covered here is uh, gentrification. Yeah. Process of renovating and improving a house or district so that it conforms to middle-class taste. Um, essentially this tells the story of a landlord who, who burns down the very building that he owns to move out the current lower class tenants so he can rebuild to fit more middle class tastes. And through Reed, through Corey Glover's very passionate vocal delivery, you could tell that Reed is pissed because you call this place a slum. Yeah. But this is this place is our home regardless of what it looks like to you. The lyrics were co-written by Tracy Morris, who was a slam poet in the late 80s and early 90s, mm-hmm. currently a tenured professor at the Pratt Institute. Um, they kind of address obliquely the crack and violence epidemic that was associated with those dwellings back then. And it's a very powerful song that continues to need to be heard. Uh, we forget that these are families, these are lives, and that the white mentality or whatever it is wants to associate everyone that lives in these developments as, quote, not worth the investment. Um, But they are. They are people with histories and memories and lives to be lived and cherished. And I wish this song got more love because it's such a great song. Here's a little piece of it right here. This is my neighborhood. This is where I love that transition to the chorus. Mm. I don't know what it is. For some reason, that stands out in this song to me so much. And it is such a, like, a just that suddenly that... It's such a weird, like, it. something doesn't sit right in my brain with it, but I love it. Me too. I don't know what it is, but... And I love the the end. His vocals are building and all that sound yeah. is building. It's just, it's just a great song. It's always been one of my favorites. And it's definitely, um, 
like this is like you said this is kind of where they start to to transition this album into talking about more serious subjects i mean beginning serious but uh desperate people in here begin to talk almost one to one about some pretty serious subjects mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which you know leads to the next song yeah funny vibe and now we're getting into more direct racially charged stuff so when your song has guests like Chuck D and Flavor Flav from Public Enemy. Flav R. Flav. I think you're going to end up being a little more direct. Um, however, this is the much less direct version of the song. Uh, the alternate version yes. of the song. Funky Vibe. Yeah, which appears on some of the expanded editions on mm-hmm. Spotify. Um, that version has rapper daddy kind of filling in the blanks. From the verses. Very directly. Kind of, kind of <laughs> it's great, us, though. It is. Kind of tells the story of his day with a walk in the park and a lady acting as if he was following her, hence the, no, I'm not going to rape you, and has him taking a cab ride to get to Brooklyn, but the cab driver won't take him there because he's afraid of that area and doesn't think that he has the money to pay him, hence the, no, I'm not going to rob you. Um, clearly a song about profiling. Yeah. And what what stands out to me is listening to this song today... It's like, oh shit, yeah, this is this is definitely a song about like white people filming, you know, like I can't you shouldn't be here walking your dog or you know Shut up, Karen. why are you painting that on the front of this house? I know who lives here. You know I live here. Yeah, this is my house. I live here. (laughs) No, you don't. It's a different family that lives here, you know. Uh this song absolutely like to me it was so interesting to hear this because I had never heard this song before listening to this song. Okay. Hearing this, I was like, oh my God, yeah, this is so like current and so relevant right now. And then I was like, oh, shit, this was written 32 years ago yep. or more mm-hmm. and nothing has changed. No. And I was like, oh, that's sad and depressing. Right. And that's, that's, it's a powerful message. And as a white suburban kid, my first reaction to hearing this song all those years ago was, that really happened? <laughs> It's naive, right? But of course it happened and happens still. It's still freaking happening. Like, mm, I don't think you can afford a cab. Like, yeah. what? Why? Why? Well, it's like, come on. It's disgusting. It but is. It's, but it's... Good song. You're right. It's a disgusting subject. Ugh. Oy. Memories can't wait. Cover of a Talking Head song. It's one of my very favorite songs from this record because the sound of it is so unique. Yeah. Um, it's got a really kind of a, a weird like wah noise to it that I like. Oh, I love this song. That echoey ending is, I think, my favorite part of the whole song, too. So cool. So the, one of the bands I was in in high school played this for a few dances. I got some really weird looks. Um, <laughs> but we did it with nothing but strobe lights and kind of everybody in the shadows. Oh, cool. So it was really bizarre. So I remember waiting for the song to start because I knew it was going to be difficult to play because I was playing only in strobe lights and that's always really disconcerting and I was probably high. So uh, I looked over at our, quote, roadie lighting guy for back in high school, (laughs) knowing that change was coming. And I kind of anticipated that the reaction we were going to get from the crowd wasn't going to be too positive. So, you know, I remember kind of like stealing myself like, oh, this is going to be rough. Ooh, good. I got a good... uh, so the my roading my roadie lighting guy oh. has a story about this guy, and I can tell this because it's all public knowledge. Okay. So my uh, my roadie lighting guy, his name was Jim Stempnik. 
Now, he uh, graduated the same high school, didn't go to college, but got a degree or got a, a job in um, uh, the the postal arts, I guess. He was a postman. Okay. In postal arts. <laughs> He's a postman in Metro Detroit. He handled a lot of packages in Detroit. Right. Got it. And he, uh, for many, many years, and it, I come to find out that uh, uh, he he got arrested because he, I guess he got tired of doing the job. So they raided his house and in his garage, they found like 75,000 pieces of undelivered mail. What? Because he just got sick of doing his job. He so, pulled a Newman? He just like. Shoved it all in his garage. <laughs> I just like that's Jim. Holy crap! <laughs> like he didn't go postal in the normal going postal way. He just stopped doing his freaking job. Wow! Like ugh, walking up to these boxes every day and sticking stuff in them is just so old. I don't feel like doing it anymore. I'm that just... is a, I will say this though, that is a blue uniform that I do respect. Postal workers. <laughs> they, uh, they take a lot of shit and they work a lot of hours. They do a lot of, and they're, you know, the, you know, the old saying come rain or sleet or even snow, mm-hmm. you know, they really do. I mean, I can't think of a time in my lifetime where there's ever been a day where they were like, we're not delivering cause it's snowing. Mm. Are you trying to tell me that blue lives matter? No, I'm not. Oh. Then don't even, uh, no, no. Okay. Oh, that, post, was, a, that was a trap. Post, postal worker lives matter. Uh, it's a trap. <laughs> no. Uh, so if, did you listen to the Talking Heads version of this song? I did not. Okay. I've heard it before, but not in quite a while. Completely and, contradictory song for the Talking Heads. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've ever listened to it, it is way out there, even for the Talking Heads. It's bizarre, noisy much more punk than they would end up being. And choosing this song to cover is kind of a, it's a bold move. But that's a, yeah, that's memories, can't we? Broken hearts. Huh? What just happened? So this is what I considered to be the stab at country. Yes, and I would agree with you there. This is another country song. Some subtle slide guitar work. Pretty sweet bass solo in there. Not to mention some... Sly harmonica work. Indeed. By Living Colors benefactor, Mick Yeager. No. Yes. I have I have never been a huge Rolling Stones fan. I mm-hmm. think there's a problem with the name. I have some sort of connotation huh. problem with Rolling oh, Stones. Um as evidenced by they don't get a lot of mentions on this here program right mm-hmm. here. Uh but I have a feeling that Mick is the best or at least the most versatile instrumentalist in the group mm-hmm. i see keith keith Re- i see keith richards appear on a ton of best guitarists ever list and i personally don't get it he's not a soloist he's not really a good player he really hasn't been plugged in since the early 90s they don't even bother <laughs> plugging his guitar in anymore because they have like five other people on stage playing guitar parts he's just basically there to have a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and do this because he strums like way up on the neck he doesn't even <laughs> strum down here he strums up here and like what is he doing but it's an arthritis thing I don't know. he's like ninety thousand years old um uh that's gonna be our number one write-in like uh don't rip is, on keith Richards. exactly that's gonna turn out to be most people are gonna get at us about that whatever 
Uh, <laughs> he writes some good melodies. Don't get me wrong, but I have the sneaking suspicion that out that also has more to do with Mick mm. than Keith himself, because even Keith's solo stuff not memorable. I don't know any of it. So the him and the winos or whatever, drunken wine. I don't know. He's got a know. wino band. I don't remember. Um, anyway, his uh, harmonica work on this uh, song is, is pretty solid. Here's piece right here. Classic love song, you know? Yeah. And the fact that up to this point we have had punk, metal, funk, rap, rock. Now you throw a little country flair in there. It's just an, another example of that versatility and musicianship. I was just going to say that uh, I still think that uh, to me, Mick Jagger isn't even a musician. He's always a, an actor mm. from the movie Free Jack. Oh, I knew you were going to bring up Free Jack again. <laughs> Just, uh, I mean, he's a he's an okay musician, but he's an amazing actor. No, so, uh, he isn't. If you've never seen uh, Free Jack we, with Emilio, Emilio Estevez, Estevez. Oh, yeah. the Mighty Duck guy, go watch it. It's terrible. Ugh, Free Jack. Every time I hear Mick Jagger, I'm like, oh yeah, that music musician and the amazing actor. <laughs> <laughs> Glamour Boys is track number nine. Oh. Boy, this is one of the two songs produced by Mick Jagger. Mm -hmm. Ended up at number 31 on the Billboard charts, so another top 40 hit for the mm -hmm. band. Also nominated for a, uh, for a Grammy for Best Hard Rock Performance by a Group or Duo. Mm -hmm. And also had another successful music video. Indeed. And it is probably my least favorite song on the record. Really? Yeah. To me, this sounds... It's, it, it's definitely a lot of like punk ska influences. It could also be... like This would have a home on like a, a Cure album. Really? I feel like it would. Like, I feel like it's just that kind of, I don't know, it fits that to me. Hmm. That's an interesting thought. I'd have to go back and listen uh, now with that kind of in my head. But after that, you know, we've had, you know, had funk, blah, blah, blah. Country. And now you're yeah. adding a little island or calypso music. Yeah. And there's these fake steel drums going on, which is, it just seemed a bit too much for me. And the I ain't no glamour boy, I'm fierce thing just seemed a little eh. That seems a little forced. Yeah, eh. I do like the message of this song, though, about how the whole message behind this song is that there are these groups of young men, and I think they're specifically directing it at young black men who are looking at, you know, wealthy society. They're saying what makes them wealthy? It's shoes, it's clothes, it's cars, it's going to parties, it's not caring about your money, just pretending you've got a lot of it. Just keep pretending. Exactly. And I think that that's, that's an important message to be like, that's crap. Right. That I ain't no glamour boy. Yeah, exactly. I'm fierce. I feel like they could fierce. have done something lyrically more interesting yeah. there. But eh, it is what it is. But uh, I, I don't necessarily think it's a bad song. I, I kind of agree with you. I think it's probably the weakest song on this album. Yeah, it's not my, it's, it's my least favorite song on the record. Like, Kyle, what's your favorite color? Uh, 
You got to call me baby. What's your favorite color, baby? <laughs> living color. No, no, that sounded like. That did sound like in living color. Yes, it did. It? Yeah, sorry. Gets in, <laughs> gets in my brain. It's hard to separate the two. Well, like I said. One's go to you and the other doesn't. I have to keep that in mind. It's a British spelling, yes. Couleur. Uh, like I said on the They Might Be Giants episode, uh, every band should have their own theme song. Mm-hmm. And I dig it. Every time I hear the opening to this, I'm like, David Lee Roth, what are you doing here? <laughs> he just yells. Yeah, what does he yell at the beginning? I think of it's Hey Baby. Oh, yeah, he does. I mean, Hey Baby. Yeah, maybe he is <laughs> emulating, mocking. And this is pretty much tell the story of the band. Yeah. Could be any of these colors. Is it red? That's what I said. Mm-hmm. Is it gold? You got me sold. But is it black? Wow. Get back. And when you are in dire need of name recognition, using your band name as the call and response in a song on your debut album, that's where it's at. Yeah. Good choice. And just keep pounding it into the brain. That was the name of that band that we were listening to earlier. It's the one with Jim Carrey? Yes. Yeah. In Living Color? That's it. Oh. Okay, good. Pre-internet. That's how it worked. I think so. You had, they... guess, you had to guess, and then you'd call up some music store and be like, hey, I'm looking for In Living Color, and they'd be like, mm. what? what? What do you mean? You know, they, they, got, that, uh, they got that song, uh, uh, Personality Cult. What, and, what are you uh, talking about, uh, man? You know, um, the letter to my landlord. Uh, which Way to America? Which Way to America, the closing track to the original album. This is the other track uh, produced by Mick Jagger. Which I feel was an interesting choice for him. So it's overtly about their perception of the United States mm-hmm. from two completely different perspectives. I look at the TV and your America's doing well. I look out the window and my America's catching hell. That is exactly the same quote that I wrote down. Oh, well, look at that. <laughs> Clearly an indictment of how the media portrayed how the country was doing in the waning years of the Reagan administration. Yeah. So I don't know, Kyle, if you have watched a documentary called The 13th on the, on Netflix. I have not. Uh, it is fantastic and heartbreaking and eye-opening. Um, it deals with a certain aspect of the 13th Amendment to the American Constitution. Uh, 13th Amendment being the one that abolished slavery mm-hmm. or involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for a crime for which the subject has been duly convicted. And there was the trap right there. The South utilized the exception in a system of laws referred to as the Black Codes. So they criminalized vagrancy, jaywalking, anything they could utilize to incarcerate and then return them to slavery. Uh, I bring that up only because of how differently the world is presented to a black man living in the inner city and someone else living in the suburbs, you know, uh, like me, for instance. And there's a lyrical part uh, of the song that the group sings right here. Where's my picket fence, my local glass of lemonade? Where's my VCR, my stereo, my TV show? Where's my picket fence, my local glass of lemonade? Where's my VCR, my stereo, my TV show? So back in the late 80s, mm. um, I just took for granted 
that these things were just available to anyone who wanted it. Um, this was certainly an accurate description of my suburban upbringing. Uh, no picket fence, but chain link mm-hmm. with a hedge. My neighbors always, always, always sat on their front porch every night during the summer and drank lemonade. We had a VCR, we had a stereo, we all gathered around the TV to watch our shows, and I guess in my continuing naivete back then, I believe that everyone else did too. It's frustrating uh, because I wish I would have had the awareness to do something about it back then. I don't know what the hell I would have done, but something, anything at all. Uh, And now, 31 years later, here we are in the exact same, if not worse spot, than before. Uh, and my hope is that the next generation can just do better than we did. That would be nice. You know, it's uh, it just li- just the lyrics of it. You know, I don't see your America. I don't see your America. And it, there's this, this guise that, that one America is the same America for everybody. And it just isn't, it just, it isn't. So, so that's it. Yeah. That's the record. Um, Heavy record. I know we probably went far afield for y'all, but these conversations need to be had. We kind of need to reevaluate everything, how we treat people, and we need to be better. And I know I do. So please send comments. Yes. uh, You can get in touch with us. Uh, Info at audiojudo.com is the email. That's probably your best bet. Uh, You can also get in touch with us, uh, facebook.com forward slash audiojudo, at audiojudo on Twitter, at audiojudo on Instagram. Uh, check out our website, audiojudo.com. We've got, uh, you can check out all the newest episodes on there. There's a link to our merchandise store. So if you want to throw us a few bucks and get a t-shirt or a sticker in return or some mugs or some other stuff, oh yeah, uh, go check it out. Uh, also, our, there's a link on there to our Patreon page. Um, like we were saying earlier, it's as little as three bucks a month. Um, it really does help us out and it gives you guys a few extra perks. Uh, we're doing some, uh, we call them judo chops. Oh yeah. That you can get access to mini uh, episodes, little mini episodes. Uh, we'll find out if they're exciting or boring when you, uh, get some, when somebody buys in and starts to respond to them. Yeah. So, uh, thanks for listening everybody. Yeah. We'll please, talk to you uh, soon. yeah, please get a hold of us and weigh in and, and tell us what your thoughts are. And we'll talk to everybody soon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 